Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. NASDAQ Solovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's nasdaq.com slash solutions slash S-O-L-O-V-I-S. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Coach Paul Asiente, the winningest coach in college sports history. For 30 years until announcing his retirement at the end of this season, Coach led the Trinity College squash program to 17 national championships and 20 finals appearances in the last 25 years, including at one point winning 252 straight matches and 13 straight national titles. In his final season, Trinity's squash team entered the national championships with the number six seed and wrote an almost fairy tale bookend to his career to the finals and within a single point of an 18th national title. Paul also coached the USA national team in squash for 17 years, Trinity's men's tennis squad for 24 years, and world team tennis with Billie Jean King in its heyday. In 2010, he authored Run to the Roar, Coaching to Overcome Fear, one of my favorite books on sports and leadership. Perhaps what's most fascinating about the soft-spoken coach is he knew nothing about squash when he got his first coaching job. His true expertise is in managing, motivating, and inspiring a diverse group of players to be the best version of themselves. Our conversation covers coach's path and a career's worth of wisdom about preparation, emotional regulation, managing high-performing individuals on a team, diversity, facing fear, learning to win and lose, and applying the lessons to the business world and next generation. Before we get going, this week, it's time to feed the meter. Okay, I know it's not necessarily your favorite thing to do, but before you get a penalty, pick up the phone and call your parents. Or if you're really feeling saucy, call your significant other's parents. And if you're married and really, really feeling it, call your in-laws. Now, these conversations have to happen regularly, but they're usually a little bit guarded. Fortunately, we've got you covered. You can start with sports. 
Major League Baseball has started its season with new rules to make the game more exciting. Carlos Alcaraz, the 19-year-old tennis sensation, is bringing new life to the tour after the Big Three. The Boston Bruins are on the cusp of breaking the win record in the regular hockey season. Todd Bowley's just fired his second coach of Chelsea in his brief tenure as owner. And Aaron Rodgers still hasn't landed with our hometown New York Jets. There's so much to talk about that you might forget the most important one and the one with the least controversy. Sharing with those family members, whether you love them or like them this time around, that they can join you in tuning in to the Capital Allocators podcast with its wealth of great guests and information. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Coach Paul Asiente. Coach, it's such an honor to be here with you. It's an honor for me to have you here. I would love to start all the way back. How you first got into sports. Sport has been a part of my life forever. I was born right across the street from Yankee Stadium. My father and I would play catch at McCombs Park. And my father would race me around the track and he would run backwards and beat me. So that was my first entree. So I wanted to play every sport. I tried out for every single sport, but I was extremely small. As a matter of fact, when I went to college, I was about 120 pounds. So I went out for football. I was too small. I went out for wrestling. I was a wimp. I couldn't jump. So none of it was working out for me. And we had this gymnastics club. So I started doing gymnastics in high school. And I went to college to be a gymnast. I was going to be an Olympian. That was my obsession. My coach cut me three times. I wasn't a very good listener. He just rolled his eyes and he said, fine, we'll make you the manager. We were one of the best teams in the country. My junior year, I get a phone call at seven in the morning. How would you like to go to the national championships? I said, sure, but what's happened? And he said, well, one of the boys on the team was told to get a haircut. He didn't get a haircut, so you're going to the national championships. So in my first competition, I finished 12th in the country. But again, it's because we were so good. And that summer, I was training at West Point because the Olympic team was training at West Point. And they said, well, in two years' time, there's going to be an assistant coaching position open. Would you like to come back? I said, yes. I could try out for the Pan American team. So I graduated from Springfield, go up to West Point, and I was surrounded by the greatest coaches in the world. So I've always had this fortunate thing about being in the right place at the right time, but having an imposter syndrome because I didn't belong. My neighbor was Mike Shazewski. My other neighbor was Jack Riley, 1960 Olympic hockey coach, gold medal, and it went on and on. About a year in, I got really badly hurt, and I thought, God, I got to pivot here. I picked up my first tennis racket, but I took it up like I was doing gymnastics, which was seven hours a day, seven days a week. And tennis is a lot easier than gymnastics. I was working hard. I got into some tournaments. I played the Eastern Clay Courts. It happened very quickly for me. Again, obsessively pushing. At that time, Ron Holmberg was the coach at West Point and who was a rock star. Ron had beaten Rod Laver at Wimbledon. This guy was the real deal. And he quit. And I applied for this job, again, having no right to get that job. They offered it to seven other people, all of whom turned it down because they didn't want to be running with cadets at six in the morning. And they thought, oh Christ, we have to give this kid this job. And they took me down to the second floor of Arvin Gymnasium and they said, this is a squash court. 
and you're now the head squash coach. Let me ask you a couple of questions in that journey. The first is this distinction between obsession and perseverance. I think the difference, and now toward the end, it's very clear for me to see, I think that obsession is ego attachment. If you're viewing yourself through the prism of the outcome of whatever it is you're doing, you're destined to be an unhealthy, unhappy person. And I was that way. I mean, we went to a gymnastics meet in Vermont. I won some awards. We came back on the bus. I left my trophies on the bus and went into the gym that night to work out. That's not healthy. There's nothing balanced about that. And ironically, I recently spoke to a person who said, one of my friends is one of your first assistant coaches at West Point. And my stomach went into knots. And I said, oh, geez, please tell him he would like me more now than he did then. (laughs) And 90% of what I do here is perspective balancing. And when I speak to companies, it's perspective balancing. We get stuck in our own heads. So to me, that's the difference. What did you learn in those early years from guys like Krzyzewski and Riley? They were like gods to me because I didn't really belong. But I learned the importance of doing the job for the sake of the job. There was no bonus if you won a championship. There was none of that in 1976. You're at a military academy. You do the job because that's what you're supposed to do. That's a healthy perspective. We don't have that in this world. It's, I'm doing this, and what am I going to get for it? And it's not the joy of just completing the mission. And Riley was great. You know, I had a son at that time, and I remember my son was misbehaving or something, and I was probably too tough on him. Riley said to me, you know, Coach, don't break his spirit. Don't break his spirit. And with Coach K, it was Army-Navy week. I was giving my team the day off that day. Because when you play Army-Navy, all of those seasonal sports play at the same time. So basketball and squash were going to be playing on the same day down at the Naval Academy. So I said, hey, coach, can I come watch you practice tomorrow? He said, sure. So I go down to the field house, and I'm literally there five minutes. And he goes off. And he is just yelling and screaming F-bombs echoing around the buildings. And he throws them out. That night, I knock on the door for our Diet Coke. (laughs) And I said, is it safe to come in? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you were a little out of control today you really lost your stuff very early in that practice. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I had scheduled this a couple of days ago. I knew I needed to get their attention. And good coaches know how to motivate. Good leaders know how to motivate. In this day and age, it's different because with the snowflakes and the gen, whatever we are now, raised to believe that they're the center of the universe, you have to have a different language with everyone you work with. You can no longer treat everybody the same. And that takes time and it takes trust. And trust is a meal that's served with a teaspoon. So it takes time. So for instance, I don't have any confidence in our freshmen, or at least I don't have any confidence in my ability to lead them because we don't have a language yet. You have to go through failure and defeat to figure out what motivates each person differently. But you can no longer just do it the same way. When you took up tennis. You were learning that from scratch, whether it's that obsession, seven days a week, six hours a day. You're now told, here's the squash court. You're going to be the squash coach. 
and you had never played squash before. How did you become a coach to a sport that you didn't play? You need to have some knowledge of the sport. You can go pick up a book and learn what you need to know. It's about people and managing people. Again, I stumbled into this, but I watched the first day of practice. And I called them in and I said, man, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know what the lines mean. I don't know how you score. I don't know anything. But it looks to me like this is a sport based on fitness. So I'm going to make a deal with you. I am going to make sure you're the most fit team in the country. And you're going to teach me squash. And we entered into that. Fast forward years later, I was coaching world team tennis. Billie Jean is a dear friend of mine. And when she speaks, listen to every word she has to say because it's unmatched. So I called her and I said, Billie Jean, we just drafted Monica Seller. She's four in the world. What in the world am I going to tell her? And she said, there are two things you need to know. No matter how talented a person is that you're working with, they want your approval. And number two, never pretend to be something you're not. And the smartest thing I did back at West Point was not to pretend that I had a clue. And they appreciated that. And I got pretty good at squash. How did you find your way to Trinity? It was a very circuitous path. I left West Point in 1985 after 12 years. And I got the job at the Apuamas Club in Rye, New York in the middle 80s. You talk about the imposter syndrome. I have never been in a club, never mind being the head pro at a club. And it just blew my mind. I had come from a world where everything was black and white. If the answer was no, they would say no and not feel badly about having to say it. Now, I'm in an environment where everything's gray. Well, it's negotiable, fungible. We can figure this out. And I was totally inequipped for that. What was the first example of your going from this black and white world at West Point to feeling like something was gray? We had a guy whose daughter I was giving lessons to. And I went home and turned on the news to see him being taken out of his office. And he had committed a crime. When I got to the club the next day, it was like, how unfair is this? Everybody's doing this. Why is he being singled out? Wait, I can't get my brain around this at all. They're the most lovely people. But the whole ethos, the whole way of approaching life, you know, you go up to Boston at that time and everybody had a bumper sticker on that said, question authority. What do you mean question authority? <laughs> you know, if you question the authority on the battlefield, people die. This was way too much for me. So I went up and got the coaching job at Williams. And I was there and I went through a divorce in Williams. So I left and started doing teaching pro work, tried to make more money for child support. And at any rate, I was bouncing around. I thought I was being efficient, but I was really lost for a couple of years. And I think when you go through a divorce, you sort of lose your mind temporarily. So then I got a phone call from a good friend and he said, the Trinity job is open. I had regained custody of my three children and I moved to Hartford. We'd love to hear about how you think about this job of motivating and coaching these kids. There's a plaque on the wall at West Point, which is a MacArthur quote. I won't get it exactly right, but what it says is, on the friendly fields of strife are sown the seeds that on later fields will bear the fruits of victory. What that meant to me, and it still means to me 49 years later, is that you learn life lessons on an athletic field that you might not learn in a classroom. 
You learn how to win. You learn how to lose. You learn how to adjust on the fly. You learn how to strategize. These are things you learn when there's a daily scoreboard and you feel the pressure. To me, that was the value of sport. I wanted to help people become better members of society through the vehicle of sport. What sport it was was almost unimportant to me. It's still unimportant to me today. So for instance, a week ago, 10 days ago, we lost in the finals of the intercollegiate championships by one point. That was the most exhilarating match that anyone has ever been in, at least in my time. We threw everything we had at Harvard. They stood up to us, hats off. We fell short. Our guys were gutted. A week later, we're going to the national singles championships. Our number one player who lost against Harvard in the team championships wins the intercollegiate championships. Why? It's all about losing. It's all about failure. I would suggest that if he had won in the team championships, he would not have done well at the singles. And there's a saying that if you're not winning, you're learning. That's not enough. It's if you're not winning, you're learning, and then you need to use what you've learned to make the changes needed for success. It's got to be that extra step in there. So after a night of self-analysis and many, many tears, he and I sat down and I said, okay, what happened? What did you do wrong? How could this have been changed? All of these kinds of conversations. And he goes down there and he just rocks through the whole tournament. That's a good thing. So he learned through failure. I think that's the whole essence of it. I believe failure is the playground for success. And I'm writing another book and it's called, What's the Point? And my big concern for society today is that we're not giving our children enough ownership over their journeys. In the name of love, we will do anything to make sure that they don't stumble or fall or skin their knee. We have to let them do that. Otherwise, we're going to have kids, this generation, that is not going to be able to function. I'd love to break down that process of learning to win and then learning to lose. The MacArthur quote, there's an element of preparation that goes into that. Talk about how you view practice. Practice is everything. I love it. When I leave this, I'm going to miss practice. It's just the best. And it's where, you know, on game day, they are fully engaged. I don't have to get my players motivated to play Yale on Saturday. If anything, I need to back them down. This is surgery at 90 miles an hour, chill out, back it down. But when they come to practice, they're not fully engaged. They think they are, but there's different levels of engagement. My job is to get them every day max effort. And every day we're a different human being. So if I had a fight with my partner, I have the flu, I come in for practice and maybe I'm only 60% of my best self. I got to get 100% of that 60 that is how you are successful. And I tell guys all the time, if you're not practicing to your full potential, whatever it is on that day, and then on March 6th, we're playing against Harvard and you say, coach, what do I need to do today? The answer is on November 21st, you should have had a better practice. That is the answer. I believe in the Japanese philosophy, which is that you cry in practice and you laugh in competition. That's how much preparation is needed. And it's not human nature to do that. As the leader of the team, what do you say or do to get each of your players to practice at the max capacity for that day? 
I believe the single most important quality for a leader is empathy. You have to be able to put yourself on the other side of the desk to know where they're coming from. And you must be an expert at observing what's going on. I can tell from their body language, from their eyes, when they're struggling, when they're off, when it's not fully engaged. And then what I do is I try to help them understand that they're not there. When they walk down from the classes, I want them putting that all down step by step by step. So when they come into the center, there's nothing else on their mind. And we talk about the awesome power of now, which I didn't make up. That's Dr. Richard Peck, (laughs) but thank you, doctor. But we talk about making every single moment of your day full engagement. When you go to class, don't just sit there and wait for the professor to give you something. Engage with the professor. Make that the best class you ever went to. When you come to practice, make it the best practice you've ever come to. When you go to the dining hall, chew every bite more than you've ever chewed it before. Make that the most delightful culinary experience you've ever had. When you go out on that date tonight, make it the most romantic tryst of your life. You do that. And then when you go to bed and you look up at the sky and you say, St. Peter, if I have to go, I'll go. If you get one person to buy into that, it's amazing. If you get a group to buy into that, you create a swirl of energy that cannot be beaten. In the process of any competition, you're doing all that preparation. You've gotten to the point where you're playing Yale, you're playing Harvard. Something's going to go wrong. How do you train your team to regulate that emotional control so that they can be at their best self in each moment? Every year we have a different theme. Last year in COVID, it was the serenity prayer, a very stoic approach to life, knowing that there are just simply things that are outside of your control. This moment is not going the way I want it to. I'll stay the course. Something will occur. I need to be ready to jump on that opportunity, but just stay the course. Don't self-destruct. So we're constantly talking about that. The irony was last year, we were talking about the serenity prayer and we were coming back from a match in Maine and we were in the middle of god-awful nowhere and the bus got a flat tire. So now we're in a truck stop, no food anywhere. Although these kids figured out how to use Uber Eats and get 20 pounds of Wendy's. And one of the boys walked up to me and he said, coach, I think you might be overdoing the stoicism thing. (laughs) What have been some of your other favorite themes over the years? The overriding thing is I coach an individual sport and I've never treated it that way. I teach a team sport. So we have 11 different countries on this team. I have a boy from Mumbai, India, next to a young man from Lahore, Pakistan. One's a Hindu, one is a Muslim. And yet I'm trying to teach them that they're brothers and that they truly need to buy that, even though their parents back in their countries won't talk to each other. So it's this constant team. It's all about the team. We've won 17 national championships in 25 years. We haven't won that many individual championships because we don't focus on the individual. So that has always been the underlying theme. These are brothers. To see Tommy Wolf come to Trinity from Park Avenue and Riverdale High, and on his first day at Trinity, he befriends Eduardo Pereira from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And Tom and Sheila would go to Brazil for Christmas, and they would come to the Hamptons for the summer. That's the stuff that is meaningful. So the themes underlying everything, obviously, is team, team, team. 
The other thing is having each other's back, being there for each other, not just giving it lip service. When I go to raise money, I will walk into a person's office and I'll notice that there are pictures on the wall. And now they're stuck in the Asiente spiderweb. Because I'll start asking them questions. Oh, is that your daughter? She's an equestrian. That's so cool. Invariably, I ask the question. And invariably, they say, no. I always look at that as not now. And so rather than leaving the room like a petulant teenager and say, I'm never talking to that person again, two weeks later, I reach out to them. How's your daughter doing? What's going on? Because those people swim in the same ponds. And so Saturday night, they're going to be at a cocktail party. They're going to be having a conversation. Something will come up and a person will say, you know, I just talked to this Asiente guy and I think you should reach out to him. He might have something that would be of interest to you. So it's how you treat people as more than just teammates. I think that's critical. I spoke at Millennium Pharmaceuticals. They're curing cancer up there. Almost all MIT grads and they sit in cubbies. And I said, you got to care about each other. And they're like, I look at a computer for nine hours a day. I don't know who the person in the next cubby is. And I said, and this is why you're failing. And the reason is, when you wake up on a day, being a human being, there are days where you just don't feel it. So what's going to motivate you to go in and be the best version of yourself? The fact that the person next to you is your friend. That's what I'm always preaching. There's so much more interest these days in the benefits of diversity. And the challenge of that, of course, is you take two people that are very different. It's hard to get them to be on the same team, as you said. You've got players from different countries, you said even warring countries. How have you gone about bringing them together to manage the diversity that you're bringing onto the team? Well, I was born in the Bronx, so I'm totally colorblind. Maybe in some ways it's been a failing of mine, but it's been amazing to be in what is America has always been predominantly sort of a white toast upper sport, and we've changed that. For us, it's just helping them understand how beautiful the differences are. And to me, the two largest differences in our program are socioeconomic. When kids graduate from here, we have an area called Tent City, dozens of tents down there. My guys are in the tent. They've got some beers, some pizza. The tent next to them has ice sculptures and caviar. And so we're just breaking down that socioeconomic thing. The second thing is the religion. Religion is a huge factor, not so much color, but the religion. And the reason it is, when I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror at an ugly old man, but I see myself as a white man in society. When Ziad wakes up in the morning and he looks in the mirror, he sees a Muslim. That is how important his religion is to him. So we talk about the differences. Isn't it interesting? We're coming upon Ramadan where you won't eat in daylight or drink for 30 days or 40 days, whatever it is. We're now in the middle of Lent. Isn't it interesting? Supposedly Christ went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. I made the ultimate sacrifice for Christ. I gave up chocolate. And we laugh and we joke about the differences. What we find is that the differences are really what bind us together. One interesting story, when 9-11 happened, we didn't know when the next shoe was falling. We were under siege. At Trinity, there were so many kids who had family members, brothers, sisters, neighbors, friends, who died in 9-11. And when you looked at the screen all day long and the images that were being shown, 
They looked like my players. I had a boy with headdress. He was a Sikh. Young man from Pakistan. And the president called us into his house. And he said, you have to make a promise to me. He said, we don't know what's going on. We're under attack. Promise me you will go nowhere where there is drinking happening, which is a brilliant thing. You're around someone that lost someone that's now drunk. God only knows. Now, nothing happened. But that was one of those days where I realized, oh, these kids really are different on this campus. And it's been pretty interesting. What are some of the situations where it didn't work? Early on, we faced a tremendous amount of prejudice. It's interesting. We had a young man on our team from Lahore. Anytime we flew, it got to the point where he would simply get off the plane and go directly to the area where they interrogate you. He didn't even stop. He just went straight there because he was always picked to do that. And it got to the point where, my God, what are we doing? This is the model citizen student athlete. We had a young black man from Harare, Zimbabwe, and he is now doing amazing things in the world. And we were playing at one of the Ivy League schools, and I was standing next to a 120-year-old man wearing a bow tie with his school colors. And my guy was wearing lime green sneakers. And this gentleman looked at the boy, and he looked at me, and he said, I say, coach, why is he wearing those colored sneakers? And I said, well, I think he likes to express himself. He likes to be a little different. And he looked at me and said, but he's black, as if that wasn't difference enough. And we faced that as we went through, and now it's changed, thank God. And how about managing within the team some of the challenges of bringing those diverse people together? Oh, it blows up every so often. Initially, I just thought Pollyanna approach, it's all fine, never a problem. When it ignites, it ignites hard. One of the things I really focus on with these boys is learning to let other people be right. When they're sitting around on a Saturday night and they're drinking, is when I'm sleeping with one eye open because they get aggressive, things happen. And invariably, that blows up the family. So we have to monitor that closely. One of the things we talk about in the program is taking back the night. And what we tell the young man is, you are probably the biggest athletic stars on campus. You're leaders, be leaders. If you're out and you see a teammate maybe moving into a dangerous situation, don't look the other way. Additionally, if you see anyone in the student body who looks like maybe they're getting overserved or looks like maybe there's a fight that's starting to brew, get engaged. So we've focused on that a lot. I'm curious, this blend of the individual sport and a team is something we see a lot in money management. How do you get the stars to buy into the team concept? It's a good question. I believe in a rite of passage. I believe in seniority. It's a meritocracy on the team. If you come in as a freshman and you're the best player on the team, you're going to play number one as a freshman. But you're going to be reminded that entire year that you're the lowest form of life on earth. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, oh, look, my tray needs to be taken up. You'll do that voluntarily, right? Oh, of course. Now, we, you know, we don't want to be hazing people and that sort of thing. But I'm a big fan of that. And they ultimately buy into that idea. That's a very good thing. So we had an example this year. We had a young man on the team who the players on the team thought, you know, he might be the weak link, and he was a senior. And then we had a young man who was a sophomore who was a world-class player but was battling some mental health issues. So he played some and he didn't play some. 
the team thought this one person maybe was a little weak, and now it's the week of the Nationals. And I said, okay, man, you two are going to play each other. And you can imagine the pressure on the senior. They went out to play. The young sophomore won the first two games. The senior won the next two games. And in the fifth game, the sophomore won the game 12-10 in the fifth. I sat them both down and I said to the sophomore, if you had rolled him, we'd be having a different conversation. But you barely beat him, which tells me you're both very even. The senior's playing in the national championships. And when you're a senior, you'll remember that. That senior went 3-0 and on the weekend. Through the process of those challenges, and certainly I'm, I was thinking about it when you're talking about the 9-11 story, there's always this question of that big battle, someone being afraid. Your book, titled Run to the Roar, would love to hear what that means and how you've imparted it on your teams. We are constantly talking to each other about how to manage every moment. And their young minds, they're very often not able to frame those moments. And very often, those moments are unconscious for them. I'm a neurotic mess. I see my shrink. He laughs at me all the time. And one day I was there and he said, you know, coach, I got to tell you, you're the weirdest dude I've ever met because I've never met a person who is so conflict avoidant. And yet on Saturdays, you take these boys directly into conflict. How do you reconcile that? And he said, so the story I'm going to tell you is the story of Run to the Roar, which is a true story. And then Africa lions hunt in packs. They take with them the oldest female of the pride. By this point, she's old and infirmed and cannot catch her own food, but she's got the deepest roar. So if you can picture her being positioned in the middle of a field, and then several hundred yards away, there's the bush. The lionesses hide in the bush but the prey are between the bush and the old lady. And when she roars, the prey run away from the roar to their death. So what is the message? You go at the problem. Go at the problem. You find out it's a toothless old lady. It's not what you made it in your mind. So when they come into my office 10 times a day, and I can tell in their eyes they're struggling with some thorny issue, Coach, my father's car got towed, and I don't know how to tell him I was illegally parked. You know, things like that. I always ask the same rhetorical question, which is, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? And the more often you say that, and they start to realize they're just making themselves actors in their own drama, it's really not that bad. It's not going to be that bad. It's going to be okay. Go at the problem. I buy them little books, and I make them take notes every day, because they don't do that anymore. And I said, you know, absolutely have your notes for the day. And when you go to bed, look at your list for the next day. You wake up much more ready to go. And whatever that is on that list that's your least favorite thing, do it in the first thing. Get it out of the way. Because what we do is we push it to the next day, and that thing gets bigger and bigger in our minds. So running to the roar is learning how to address your fears, even though you may not know what they are. That is what we do every minute of every day here. And so going into match day, they're not quite as afraid as what's the worst that can happen. We won 252 consecutive matches. That's ridiculous. And I'm not taking any credit for that. But I remember one of the boys from Bloemfontein, South Africa, came into my office. Literally, he was so frightened, it never occurred to me. He said, Coach, what's going to happen when the streak ends? 
And I said, well, you know, when the streak ends, rivers are going to run red and frogs are going to fall out of the sky. Nothing's going to happen. We'll be <laughs> fine. We'll get up the next day and start a new streak. Even at the Nationals last week, before the tournament, I said to the guys, if there was ever a team that deserved success this weekend, it's you. You've done everything right. You're healthy. We've managed every minute perfectly. I am hoping for you success because it's not my success. I'm hoping for you success. No matter what, tomorrow the sun will come up. And it freed them up because it's interesting. I coached tennis here for 24 of my 30 years here. It was so much fun coaching tennis because except for the kids and their parents, not that many people cared about tennis here. Whereas squash, it means more to so many than it even means to us. It's our thing. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'd love to dive into how it got to be that way. How did you go into this sport that you then knew something about and turn the program into such a perennial winner? It's really an interesting story. What it says to me is a bad idea will never work no matter how hard you work, and a good idea can never fail. So when I first came here, I was just thrilled to be rolling out the balls to the boys from Mainline Philadelphia and Brookline, Massachusetts, Brooklyn, New York, and that's what we were doing. And we were slightly better than a 500 team during my time. One day, the president of the college, Evan Dobell, called me into his office. And this meeting honestly took about three minutes. And he said, Coach, you play against the Ivy League schools. You don't ever win them, but you play against a schedule that I would like to be able to brag about. He said, so tell me, where are the best squash players in the world? And I said, they're in foreign lands which was hard for me to admit because I was the U.S. national coach. He said, great. He said, go out and find the best and the brightest and understand that we're not going to give away financial aid that they're not qualified for and understand that we're not going to make academic compromises, but I want you to go out and find the best and the brightest. And he said, you're dismissed. And I got up to walk out of his door and he said, coach. And I looked back and he said, don't screw this up. <laughs> and so off we went. I can honestly tell you that change for better or worse, change the course of squash forever. This past weekend, in the Elite 16, there were two U.S. players. He saw the formula. He wanted to be able to walk into a board meeting where there was somebody there from an Ivy League school and say, hey, we stuck it to you this weekend. 
So how long did it take to get from a 500 team to a championship team? Well, it took us two years to make it to the finals. And you only need nine players. We already had nine good players. And then we bring in three world-class international players. And it was interesting. We beat Harvard at home in a dual match for the first time in history. It was otherworldly. And then the last match of the year, we went down to play Princeton in a dual match, and they beat us. So we go down back to Princeton the following weekend to play in the national championships, and we have Princeton in the semifinal. I get a phone call from Evan's secretary. He says, Coach, Evan's in California. He wants to know when the finals are. I said, you have to tell Evan we just lost to Princeton and we play them in the semifinals. She says, okay, hold on. And then she goes over and she talks to Evan. She comes back and she says, Evan wants to know when the finals are. <laughs> it was like, oh my God. He flew in. We beat Princeton in the semifinals and we lost to Harvard 5-4. And he came up to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, coach, could you imagine if we ever won one of these? That year he left to take another job. We won 13 in a row. How did the complexion of your team and the other teams you competed against change such that you were able to win so many titles in a row? I have a friend who was in finance, and he told me one time, there are three eyes in life. There are innovators, there are imitators, and there are idiots. The interesting thing was, and I apologize for telling you this as a Yale graduate, but the Ivies rather than saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? It became a pity party. Woe is me. They're bringing in illiterate people. They're cheating. We weren't doing any of those things. So instead of saying, what is the secret sauce here? It was like, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Then one day they said, wait a minute, not only can we do this, we can do this better than them. Well, who wouldn't come to Harvard? So now it's changed. And for the last few years, we haven't been that competitive. For us to make the finals this past weekend is otherworldly. How have you learned to coach your kids about losing? Celebrate it. Absolutely celebrate it. It's awesome. That's your moment. When you're winning, you're not learning anything. When you lose, the train stops. Everybody comes out with their magnifying glasses. What just happened here? you know, oh my God, were we good enough? Did we train or were we sick? What happened? Why did this? And then you make your adjustments. It's the perfect story. And to me, that's where champions are made. The single most important thing in life to be successful, in my opinion, is resilience. And if you're not failing, what are you going to recover to? You know, it's like I tell my seven-year-old, you cannot show bravery if you're not first afraid. You cannot be resilient if you don't first fall. Cute story, when I was coaching at Army, I had a great player on our team who was just recently retired as a four-star general. And he was playing number three for us, and he had an amazing year. He was maybe 14 and three. And we go down to play at the Naval Academy, which is all that matters in life. And they've got a kid with like a six and six record. And their kid was a lefty. And their coach outcoached me on that day. And that boy hit every single ball every single ball to my guy's backhand and my guy lost and he was devastated and i went up to him and i said rich what i learned today is the importance of dominating the backhand cross-court exchange and he said that's great coach but i'm graduating with a loss against the naval academy i said well fairy tales don't always come true a week later we're going to the singles championships and he looks at the draw 
in the second round, he's got the Navy guy. And he walks out onto the court and he shakes his hand and he says, this just proves that there really is a God. (laughs) (laughs) And he just pummeled him off the court. I'll give you a business story. I was working as a consultant for a company and I went up to speak to the company and talk to all the partners. And as I was leaving, one of the young partners came up to me and he said, I'm sure you're a nice man, but I'll probably never talk to you. I said, okay. He said, I don't know what you do and you have no idea what I do. So why would we waste each other's time? I said, that's fine. So a few months later, I get a call and says, we're having a bit of a crisis. It's a Sunday. Can you come up for this meeting? So I drive up and all the partners are sitting around this table. And at the end of the table is this young man and he's just getting skewered. And apparently he'd made an investment that failed. And I'm being a Luddite like I am. They're going at it and going at it. And after a while, I raised my hand and I said, can I ask a question? And they said, yeah. And I said, didn't you all participate in this decision? Well, yeah. So then why are you killing him? So as I was leaving to go to my car, he came running up to me and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, you stood up for me. I said, I didn't. I questioned the process. About two months later, I get a phone call in the middle of the night. And he says, coach, I have to call you to tell you I hit the mother load today. I said, that's great. I said, but why are you calling me? And he said, if I'm going to cry on your shoulder, then I also want to share in the success. What differences are there when you're coaching your college team compared to these higher levels like the national team or team tennis, the professional tennis players? I also do some work with the Patriots. Belichick is a very good friend of mine. And they're not in the business of education. This is business. So there's a big difference in that. It was always interesting when we'd have world team tennis and uh, these amazing players on the team. Nobody in the stands were there to see me. (laughs) And it was very clear. And that was fine. You asked a question earlier about the importance of practice. And I tell the boys this all the time. We'd play a world team tennis match. And then there would be autographs and all of that going on. And then we'd have a team meeting before we'd go to the hotel. And what we would meet about was the next day. And the first thing they'd put on the schedule was practice. And they would build the day out from there. Okay, we're practicing at two, therefore we're having lunch at this time. I can do my PR work all around practice. When Monica Sellis was playing, I would walk up to her and I'd say, Monica, would it be okay if I suggested something? And she'd say, sure, coach. And I'd say, well, you know, you've got two hands on both sides and I'm noticing that Lakovzova's really pulling you wide to the forehand side. So why don't you, and then she'd look at me and smile and go back on the court. Sometimes she would listen, sometimes she wouldn't. (laughs) With the U.S. national team, It was a little bit tricky because I was really a part-time coach. So the only time we'd be together was when we were getting ready for a world championship or something like that. So I didn't really have the full credibility. I was more of a manager than I was a coach. I needed to be careful not to overstep my limits. You know, to me, a coach is like a referee or an athletic trainer. It'd be good if nobody knew you were there that night, but a lot of people make it all about themselves. What have you learned about coaching that you wish you could give yourself tips from when you first got here? That it's not all about you. As a matter of fact, it can't be at all about you. You saw when you came into my office, there's 17 national championship rings up there. When I retire and walk away, I'm leaving those 17 national championship rings. Those belong to the college. Yes, they're my size, but that's the college that won those, not me. I wish I could have taken myself out of it early, but I had that need because of the imposter syndrome. 
How did that play out in ways that you coached and led your teams then compared to now? Well, I was probably not giving them enough space, enough room. I was probably a little too demanding because it was about me. I've learned now to provide them that space. It's much better now. The balance is better. What have you seen as the application of what you've learned as a coach and what's different in the business environment? I think they're much more similar than they are different. Again, hearkening back to Billie Jean, not pretending to be something you're not. Usually when I speak to these companies, I go in in sweats because I don't want them to know that I can't afford a nice suit. And I also am a big fan of self-deprecation, so I tell a lot of funny stories at my expense. But mostly, everybody's trying to find a way to make the organization successful and trying to understand how to get the most out of people. I don't think that's that different. I'll speak at a retreat, and very often the CEO will get up and they'll have a slideshow and he'll talk about, well, this was fourth quarter earnings and this is our goal for first quarter earnings and this is our North Star and blah, blah, blah. When I get up, I'll say, well, that's all well and good, but I believe it's nothing but people. If you really take care of your people, they'll take care of the business side of things. I have never met an athlete that's playing their sport while holding the scoreboard clicker. And I think that is really critical. One of the interesting things that I have found that I think is a challenge for companies is very often I'll come across companies where you have super bright people sitting in a room trying to figure it out. Instead of get out of your chair, walk down the hall and ask the question, you save yourself so much time, so much more effective. And I don't know what it is. They don't want to do that. And I think that's a big difference. Whereas I want my kids, I want to be speaking too much. We'll joke, you know, oh, coach is having a meeting to decide when we're going to have the next meeting. And that's not far from true, but total transparency. That idea of transparency, you wrote about this in your book when it came to challenge ladders on your team. You'd think, hey, the best player wins or the story you just told, hey, the senior actually lost, but you made the decision that he was going to play. What are some of those examples of where you had transparency on decisions, but from the outside, you would say, hey, that wasn't an obvious decision? We try to hold the challenge system in its purity because if they're up there really getting after each other, and then your actions on the other end show that, well, that wasn't really that important then you're not going to get full effort out of them. So I want them going up there and battling. And I want them to earn their spot through that head-on competition. And I'm fortunate. you know, I don't know how the lacrosse coach or the soccer coach does it. You're making subjective decisions out there. In the swimming pool, there's a clock. In the squash court, there are two people playing against each other. Winner moves on. And we try to stay with that. Sometimes it doesn't work. An example is some people just play better in practice. So you'll have a number two player who's beaten people below him, but in competition, the number three player never loses. Then we'll sit down and say, the ladder is supposed to reflect the actual strength of the team in competition. We're going to move the number three player above you because he's proven in competition. He's the better player. So the other challenging thing, of course, somebody gets injured or somebody gets hurt. How do you bring them back in? 
and the system doesn't work in that regard. So if you're injured, you're playing number three and you get injured and you're out for two weeks. If I'm watching you play, I would say, well, you know, maybe he's playing about number nine level right now. Let's put him at number nine. That's considered stacking. That's illegal. I have to bring you back at the number three spot, which is a problem. Because what if I bring you back at three, but you're only 50% of yourself from before? You got to play number three. And that looks like I'm stacking there. So it's a very tricky one to the point where we now are supposed to put online challenge match results open to the entire league. So you know, oh, this guy's playing number one because he's beaten this person and this person. Interestingly enough, I consult for UNC Tennis. And as best I can tell, at the Division I Tennis, the coach and the team sort of decide what the lineup's going to be. And they're all very much at peace with that. But of course, they have world rankings or national rankings, so it makes it a little easier to make those decisions. You made reference to writing another book, and I was wondering if you'd give a little preview of what that book's about. My first book really had three themes, which was learning through sport, learning how to manage fear, and as an apology to my three grown children. One of the things I'm concerned about now is that as a society, our kids are not getting enough ownership over their journeys. So they are so afraid to fail that they will cheat to not fail. We're seeing more cheating than we've ever seen before. And tie that to the mental health issues post-COVID. It's a mess. This book is how to help people understand the importance of ownership. When a gymnast does a round-off back handspring, double backflip, and lands on their head, they don't come out with a magnifying glass and examine the double back. They go back to the round-off. Well, for us, we need to go back to the parents. And that's the answer. Let your children fail. I know it's hard, but if you want your child to be successful, that's got to happen along the way. You know, when I was growing up, if I came home with a progress report, my father would say, you know, what the heck's going on here? Honestly, now, if Susie Sunshine comes home with a progress report, the parents want to know how the teacher is letting her down. It's truthfully what's going on. So this has to stop. And I don't delude myself into thinking that a book is going to change the world. But it is an interesting thing. I had the honor to do a presentation with Jim Lair, who is the eminent sports psychologist in the world as far as I'm concerned. We were speaking at a prep school in the Philadelphia area to 500 parents, all of whom had children of almost college age, recruited young athletes. And only Jim could get away with this, but he stood up with a blackboard and he said, okay, I want you to play a game with me. He said, first of all, when your child was born, what were the big three? Okay, hand goes up. I want my child to be healthy. I want my child to be happy. Okay, great. Those are your three. Now you decide you want your child to play an extracurricular activity, the oboe, lacrosse, whatever it is. What were the big three? My child to develop confidence through the activity. My child to learn how to play nice in the sandbox. He writes down the big three and he turns to the group and he says, so here's my question. When did you collectively lose your minds? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, wow. <laughs> but it's true. How did this become the ticket to a better college? I get it. I understand it. We want what's best for our child. But is that what's best for that? human being in society down the road. 
One of the things I've always been curious about when you have so much success as a coach, just measured in terms of winning and losing, winning national championships, coming so close, what happens the day after a win or a loss? You go back to work. You go back to the business of evolving as a human being, helping people understand what just happened, helping them understand that it's never quite as good as you think it is, and it's never quite as bad as you think it is. To me, Ted, the paycheck is not the wins or the rings or the banners. It's the relationships with those people all through life. And it's amazing when they come back or when you're invited to a wedding or you're made a godfather of a child. That's the paycheck. We put a tremendous amount of value in what student athletes think about the program. At the end of the season, our players are going to be given an evaluationary form evaluating my performance as a coach. And I go down to the athletic director's office and he hands me this packet and I thank him very much and I put it in the garbage pail. I don't care what a 19-year-old thinks. And half those kids weren't in the lineup. They shouldn't be happy. They should be working harder. I want to know what they think five years later. That's the paycheck. How do you think about managing your players differently today from 10 or 15 years ago when, as you said, the expectations are so different? It's really hard because I'm a dinosaur. It's been difficult. The question you get asked always, every day, multiple times, is why? And my knee-jerk reaction is to want to say, because I said so, but you have to sit and explain to them why. And it's exhausting. Every new situation is a why and what happened there and why are you making me do this and that sort of thing. So it's different. These young people need to understand why rather than saying, of course, the coach said it, so that's what we're going to do. So coach, by the time that this comes out, it'll be announced that you are stepping down after this incredible career. So what's next for you? I think the key to happiness in life is knowing your purpose. And one of the things I learned along the way was my purpose is messaging. So I would like to stay at Trinity and I would like to continue helping with the messaging in different areas. I'd like to help with friend raising. I'd like to help be a liaison between the athletic department and admissions. And if someone has a superstar recruit, I'd like to be one of the stops on the tour because my daughter graduated from here and it changed her life. What I didn't want is I didn't want to be that person who stayed too long and someone said, well, he was a nice guy. Let's let him do that on his terms. Who was that for? This is for the program and for the kids. And I know the time has come. It's a young man's job. And also, I have three children at home. It's time for me to go home and pick them up from school and have daddy-daughter dinners. And I haven't done that, and it's time. All right, Coach, I want to ask you a couple more questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Don't have one yet. Looking forward to developing one. My favorite thing in life used to be to run. I played professional tennis. I played professional squash. If you told me I could go and do any of these activities, I would always choose go for a run. I just found that I could get to a head place that was different. Now it's hard for me to walk. 
but I'm going to start doing a lot of walking. I can't really read very much because of my eyesight, but maybe I'll learn how to putter around the garden a little bit, learn how to drown worms on a pond. I don't know. We'll see. What's your biggest pet peeve? Someone not applying themselves with what God gave them. I find that unforgivable. I can accept almost anything except a person not trying. And obviously, that's usually a product of them getting themselves so tied up mentally that they can't see straight. They don't even know they're they're not trying. But there have been times where I've taken student athletes across the street to the hospital to visit a child in a hospital bed and said, you know, this kid would give anything to be in your shoes. How dare you? I just think that's unforgivable. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Firstly was my dad. I was raised with love, and we would talk virtually every day. And when he passed away, it was like a cataclysmic starburst. I could no longer pick up the phone and call him, but I am awash in his essence everywhere I go. The interesting thing was he would always ask me, what's next? What's next? What's next? That wasn't the best thing for me. I should have been able to say, this is next, right here. This is enough. Then all of the coaches that I got to work with along the way had such a big influence on me because they had all learned so much and they had so much to share. Some of it was good and some of it wasn't good. Some of it applied to me and some of it didn't apply to me. Look, I've never had a creative thought in my life. Everything I know, I've stolen from other people. And I've had a lot of great people to steal from. What was the most challenging moment in your career or life? As I've told you, it's always not as bad as you think it is. What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? Oh, maybe 15 years ago, we received an anonymous packet written in legalese, went to my president, charging us of 11 NCAA violations. And our president was not happy. He stuck his finger in my chest and said, I've fired people for less. And I called the chairman of the board and I said, I thought you were innocent until proven guilty. And he said, we have your back until we don't. That thing went on for a full year. They hired the biggest law firm. And every day I woke up not knowing what's the worst that can happen. Are they going to take away championships? Is this going to hit the newspaper? Am I going to be vilified? Once again, making myself the actor in my own brain. That was the worst year I ever went through because I just didn't know what was going to happen. So I couldn't answer the rhetorical question. And what happened at the end of that? They were all nothing. We had a young man on our team. His last name was Vargas. One of the first accusations was that this young person was playing in Columbia at a pro tournament in October. I call up the young man. Were you down in Columbia playing? It's your name. No, coach, I wasn't there. Well, it says you were there. I've looked at the draw. There's a Vargas in the draw. I said, coach, that's my cousin. And one (laughs) by one, these things washed away. But that was a brutal year. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? To be a kind and gentle person. It's the only rule we have in our house. Wake up and be a kind and gentle person. There's so much anger now in society. Don't get sucked into that. My father was an interesting man. He wasn't very successful by today's standards, but he was the kind of guy that could walk across the field and not leave footprints. He was just a kind and gentle soul. That's what we're all 
focused on trying to be better at. All right, Coach, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? That it's not about you. I wish I had known that earlier. I would have been a better coach and a better person. People ask you all the time, what would you change? I don't think I would change anything because I had to stumble and bump and fall. And I wish I hadn't hurt people along the way. But that's what made me able to do the messaging now. But I wish I had learned earlier that it's not all about me. Coach, thanks so much for sharing this incredible path and good luck in what's next. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 